0: So, yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 126 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, June 21st. I'm your host, Allison Gill.
1: And I'm Pete Struck. Today, we'll take a look at the new Washington Post reporting about Mike Sherwin and the FBI shutting down multiple attempts by DOJ officials to investigate Trump and the fraudulent elector scheme.
0: Yep. And we're also going to look at the new charges against former Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira, along with the latest in the Jim Jordan Weaponization Clown Show, or I guess I'm going to call it the Weaponized Committee from now on. But first, I want to thank our new patrons. Seriously, you make this show run. It's how we do everything here is through patrons. So thanks. Uh, We have a a pretty big batch, so we're going to split them up this week. Uh, Kristen Shire, Paperclip. Colleen LeClaire, Robin Gittleman, Desert Gal, hi, Desert Gal, El Chorizo in Texas, mm-hmm. Barbara Rose Norman, Catherine Egan, David Lyon, Ben Robson, Kevin Brandies or Brandeis, and McMurple. Great name, McMurple. Mm-hmm. Again, if you want to become a patron, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, 4 pod And Pete, we had a great time on our super mega uh, justice, happy hour, cleanup, Jack Beans thing this this past Friday. That was great. We had like 400 people join us.
1: Yeah, it was really amazing to see everybody turn out. And I mean, you know, it was a big week. We had, uh, you know, indictments and discussion about that. And so it was like very nice to see those so many folks turning out and just such, you know, amazing questions, such a great community to see folks, you know, both chatting in the on the chat as well as talking uh, throughout the you know, leading up to and during the discussion. So that was a lot of fun and look forward to the next one. But everybody, thank you. I mean, as Allison said, you're absolutely the lifeblood Uh, without you. We couldn't do this. So I, I, like Allison, just deeply, deeply appreciate and am tremendously humbled by your support. So thank all of you.
0: All right. So what the frick? Um, So there was some Washington Post reporting out today, and I think the headline should be this. I think the headline should be Trump holdovers in the DOJ and FBI blocked multiple... Attempts to investigate Trump and the fraudulent elector scheme. That's what I think the (laughs) the headline should be here. But there is some really interesting new reporting in here. A lot of this is old stuff that's just put together in one long narrative. But there's a lot of new, interesting reporting in here on early meetings um, that had to do with Mike Sherwin and a guy named Dan Tuoño, who I believe was the head of the DC Washington FBI field office. uh, The back, you know, after Trump, right after Trump left office. Uh, before we got uh, graves put in there in the end of November of 2021, like almost 10 months later, uh, <laughs> it took because there was a lot of uh, blockage happening in the uh, Republican Senate. But let's let's talk about some of this reporting, Pete.
1: Yeah. So the article is from Carol and Aaron Davis, and, and Carol in particular had done a report probably, I don't know when it was, four or five months ago. There was uh, a kind of really detailed insider's account of the debate between the FBI's Washington Field Office on the one hand and DOJ and FBI headquarters on the other about whether or not to see, seek a search warrant down at Mar-a-Lago. And DOJ and FBI headquarters were on the side of getting a search warrant. Uh, the FBI's Washington Field Office and uh, Dan Tuono, who was the, the ADIC, the assistant director in charge of the Washington Field Office, uh, pushing to know, you know, we need to cooperate. We can trust Evan Corcoran. We should go to them, seek consent to do it. And it was really, I mean, it was disappointing, to me, from an insider's perspective, to see so many people within, you know, apparently the only people in this room or these rooms were the FBI and DOJ officials. So to see folks like that um, disclosing a lot of information that I had never seen that level of sort of insider baseball um, between the FBI and DOJ before. So, you know, on the one hand, good for the Washington Post and credit to Carol and all our colleagues for doing it. On the other hand, that's kind of like, you know, if you're in the bureau of the DOJ, you need to like not talk so much about what the sort of ins and outs are. Are but what's clear is that you know at least Carol and she was on one of the one of the original authors on that piece uh, was getting additional information you know whether she got it at the time whether she was continuing leads but this piece in the Washington Post uh, on the Monday the nineteenth is a very sort of broad coverage I mean it's a very in depth article it's I didn't do a word count but it's uh, you know several several thousand words I think essentially laying out everything about how the investigations and the prosecutions unfolded between the FBI and DOJ immediately following January 6th, all the way through the appointment of Jack Smith. And like you, you know, there's a lot in there that was surprising. I do think, you know, I think like you, you and I share the, the sense that I think, you know, Garland and people currently in DOJ get a lot of criticism, a lot of which I think doesn't take into account. Um, investigative facts on the ground, you know, that you reported long before I joined this podcast, but the point two things that were occurring on the ground, and you know, when people start screaming, why isn't Merrick Garland doing anything? Why isn't this going faster? That really doesn't take into account the fact, you know, that, you know, poor old, uh, you know, what's his name? The hapless, uh, you know, DOJ attorney general wannabe standing in his underwear and his uh, in front of his garage as <laughs> Jeff his phone's Clark. being seized. Jeff Clark. I mean, that, those things, that happened well before any January 6th hearing occurred. So to the extent people are saying, oh, you know, it took January 6th to kick DOJ in the ass. No, it didn't. You know, poor Jeff Clark was sitting there in his skivvies, you know, hands behind his back while while investigators went through his house. But on the other hand, it does point to a lot of things that, you know, there was, it, it seems clear now, some missed time at the beginning that now as we are scrambling to get cases charged and heard in trials before the election, a missed six months, eight months do matter. And not just for the timing now, but, you know. People destroy evidence, people forget things, people, things get lost. So the sooner to an event you can go out and investigate, the better off you are. And this, this article points to a lot, but I mean, let's. Well, you and I discussed, you know, early, early on that, that there didn't seem to be, there seemed
0: like there was a lack of urgency, uh, and, um, resources, uh, early on. And there's, there seemed to be multiple things that contributed to the initial six to eight to 10 month delay in getting all of this going uh and when it did get going you know we all reported it when it got going um and everybody seemed okay with that but now they're very freshly angry <laughs> so um but uh, i think we need to point out who the culprits are so so what do we have what does tell us what what was that first meeting
1: Yeah. So the first thing is it talks about just shortly after he was uh, confirmed that A.G. Garland met with a uh, Mike Sherwin, who was the then uh, U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia and his other and other top deputies when he got to DOJ in March. And that was, I think, March 11th, 2021. So, you know, roughly a little just over two months after the insurrection and the Post got a hold of a briefing document, but in this Sherwin goes through 11 pages of presentation of Merrick Garland on this March 11th meeting. And there's no reference in that slide deck of any reference to Trump or Trump's immediate advisors. So, you know, the question is right off the bat, you know, again, so to to this scope back, right? And let's go back up to 35,000 feet. And some of this is, okay, to your point about Do you blame Garland? Do you blame the people who were there before him? This is the information that Garland is getting literally on the first days that he is on his job. And what he's being briefed about does not contain any reference to Donald Trump, does not contain any reference to uh, Mark Meadows or Roger Stone or Alex Jones or Mike Flynn or, you know, any of these other knuckleheads who are running around. Rudy Giuliani, presumably. The folks that now are of immense interest in terms of what they were doing on January 6th for any number of things. That first briefing he gets doesn't contain any information about that. So, you know, the the question becomes, all right, so how, you know, what Garland is only as good as the information that he's being briefed about. But on the other hand, I think you also can't eliminate, and what bothers me the most, both by DOJ, but certainly also it's apparent to me, the FBI, is there's some underlying concern about, well, we don't want to appear partisan. You know, there's there's everything that we went through and particularly the FBI went through as a result of the Clinton uh, email server investigation, the Russia probe, the Durham investigation. We need to be cautious and we don't want to go too far out of our skis in terms of what we're doing, certainly with regard to Trump. And that's BS. I mean, that yeah. that should not be, I understand why people might be concerned about that, but that's exactly one of those concerns as a leader. You sit there and you tell your folks, look, I understand people might be concerned, about you know Horowitz giving people you know three-year proctological exams. I understand that Durham has an ongoing criminal investigation of dozens of your colleagues right now. Think about that, right? Mm-hmm. Go Bar. We're going on at this time. Literally dozens of people in the FBI being investigated by this criminal, you know, investigation by this U.S. attorney, saying, "All right, you know," setting that aside. I know you might be reticent or reluctant to investigate things which lead to Trump, but we're going to go out there and do it. And I don't want you to be scared, and I'll protect and back you up. And it seems very clear that certainly in in you know large segments of at least the FBI, that wasn't occurring. That. On the contrary, people were scared. People didn't want to do it. I don't know, you know, the this threshold. We haven't met it yet. I don't want to get dragged into it. Why do we need to do it? And we Why talked about that chilling do
0: effect, too. We're we, you know, we like, this is going to, this whole investigating the investigators is really going to make the FBI pretty gun shy about going after anybody political at all. But those political considerations of trying to be apolitical are in themselves political. Uh, you know, I, so I, it's, you know, it's, it's this um, sort of double-edged sword there. But um, the the effort, uh, like you said, into, you know, to investigate Trump over classified records um, had, had the same kind of obstacles with the FBI, as you brought up at the top of the show. But the delays began before Garland even got there. And this has to do with Sherwin, senior Justice Department officials, and Paul Abade. Is that, am I saying that right?
1: Abate. Abate. Abate.
0: The top deputy of the FBI, uh, director Christopher Ray, Um, they quashed a plan by prosecutors in the US attorney's office to directly investigate Trump associates they they quashed that now the post says the FBI didn't open an investigation of the fraud, fraudulent elector scheme until April of 2022 about 15 months after the attack but the public reporting is to the contrary and not just public reporting because i could put up a washington post report that says something different but then you're like all right well what do you who do you believe the washington post or the washington post but there's court filings, right? Kyle, Kyle Cheney share, and I, you know, I put this out too. Um, there was an unsealed uh, proceeding showing that they had Eastman, Perry, and Clark stuff well ahead of of April. And so, what I don't understand is how you can say that the fraudulent elector scheme investigation wasn't opened until March or April by Christopher Ray when there were subpoenas and stuff, but. But if you remember, and you and I talked about this, too, we're like, why are there DOJ inspector generals showing up to do these searches? And I think that probably has something to do with it. I think it sounds to me like Wyndham, who was put in in November of 2021, as soon as Graves got there at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, um, Wyndham wanted to get, you know, subpoenas and search warrants for these things. And it looks like the FBI said no. Uh, just like they did with the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, just like they did with trying to look at the fraudulent electors, and so he went to the DOJIG uh, Inspector General to to uh, conduct these search warrants.
1: Yeah, and there's a couple of things. There was a new piece of information, at least new to me, in the Washington, this Washington Post report that was talking about that Wyndham same same prosecutor uh, went to D'Antuono and the FBI and said, "Hey, look, I you know I, I want to serve these subpoenas on the Willard Hotel to get billing records and information about who was paying for the various, which entities were paying for what rooms and for you know." For, on, on whose behalf and how many rooms, and who was staying in there. And, you know, clearly this is part of the war room. And there's a lot of activity now that was not only a focus of the January 6th committee, but also, you know, a lot of sort of investigative indications that that has become important. But at least according to the Washington Post, the FBI and Dan Tuono specifically pushed back and saying, I'm not serving these subpoenas on the Willard. I'm not going to do it. You don't have enough information. And apparently, then Wyndham just like, you know, the potentially the IG, but according to the Post, in this case with the Willard subpoenas, Wyndham turned to the Postal Service Inspectors and said, hey, will you guys do it. Now, I don't think the Post says whether or not they infer or imply certainly that the Postal Inspectors did it, but I just, you know, anytime the, the job, look, the job of an investigator is to be curious, is to be full of doubt, is to be aggressive. You want, I you know, I would want all the time I would rather have investigators who are trying to push the margins, who are out there saying, hey, we want to go do one through 10 And then having senior leaders or or prosecutors at DOJ say, well, look, you know, 9 and 10 are potentially problematic because maybe the First Amendment concerns or, you know, we need to think about whether or not that's really going to give us evidence that is helpful, you know, one way or the other. But what it appears is like, you know, it's flipped on its head. You have the FBI, at least some indication that people are worried about, like, well, what's the political impact of this? How are we going to be targeted? How do we, you know, walk back and, you know, avoid the pitfalls of – you know, Clinton and the and, uh, the 2016 Russian attacks on the elections, uh, that's baloney. The answer is you don't. The answer is yeah. go out and do the right <laughs> thing. The answer is go out, be curious, be investigators, investigate.
0: Let me ask you a chain of command question. Let's, uh, Wyndham's having a hard time pushing back. Maybe he can't get subpoenas, uh, has to go to the postal inspector, has to go to the DOJIG for the J- Jeffrey Clark Eastman uh, stuff. And, and he's working with the... D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, Graves there, right? At what point does Graves go to Garland and say, will you tell the FBI to quit being, uh, uh, like, opposing us? Or do they all kind of work it out within their own U.S. Attorney's offices, within their own field offices? Uh
1: I mean, look, generally you don't want to ever elevate something like that to main justice and FBI headquarters. That's the kind of thing. And again, you know, people should understand. I mean, there are frequently conflicts between prosecutors and investigators about wanting to do course of action A versus course of action B. And there's a lot of give and take. And sometimes that gets very heated. So something like this to occur is not unheard of. It's not unusual. And typically, you know, nobody wants to like go to their boss at, you know, down, down the street at, you know, and say, hey, look, you know, we can't work this out. Will you solve it for us? But you know, it also seems that at least from the early days, according to the, again, according to this Washington Post report, that Garland and Ray and certainly, you know, Lisa Monica, the deputy attorney general, and Paula Bate, the number two at the FBI, the deputy director, were all kind of on board about, no, we need to build up from the ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And look, I get that initially, right? I mean, some of it, the article makes a good point that right after January 6th, The goal was we need to put some of these high visibility people who engaged in the insurrection under arrest because we want to send a message and have a deterrent effect. Anybody who might be thinking about showing up on the inauguration on January 20th, we want to deter that. makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and I think that was, you know, between that and saying, hey, we don't want to rush down to the end to opening a case on Trump. You know, we want to build to it. That might make sense, but it doesn't make sense that, you know, there's a quote in the in the article that talks about you do get to the point where as you're working up, there's not a ladder to get you from the people on the ground on January 6th of so the Oath Keepers of the Proud Boys into some of this criminal activity, alleged criminal activity, particularly on the fake elector slates. I mean, there's nothing investigating the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and every single one of the thousand plus people who trespassed onto the Capitol and interrupted the certification. None of that is going to get you to the plot allegedly to you know have these fake electors upset the results of the election the, you you've, you you can't get from there from one from point a to point b you have to start at a different point and that's one of those you know the frustrating well, especially things especially if great. you're
0: not allowed to subpoena people at the willard
1: <laughs> right so i just which I, would be I, the only I connection think... Yeah. And I don't, you know, and it is concerning to me that, that I I don't know, Dan Tuono, I don't, I mean, we just, we were in, we investigated different sorts of uh, topics and areas and we didn't overlap in any particular assignment. So I don't know him, but I am concerned where you see somebody who is showing up in a couple of different instances, whether it's the fight to not, you know, we shouldn't get a search warrant from Mar-a-Lago. It's like, all right, well, that delayed things at a minimum. And God knows what happened to all these classified documents in the hands of Trump. And, you know, what What was lost in the course of those months of delay when that same person is here sitting there saying, I'm not going to serve these subpoenas at the Willard causing a, a prosecutor to go to the Postal Service Inspectors to do it. It, it just isn't – again, the, the, core, the core needs to be – be curious and it doesn't – it shouldn't matter. Be curious about what Hillary Clinton did with her, you know, server. Be curious about what the Russians did. Be curious about – what the hell, you know, Clark and Eastman were doing. It, it's just your job as an investigator, first and foremost, like top of the list, work hard and be curious. That, that's all you can ask for.
0: Yeah. And it seems to me like a lot of the sourcing here is Sherwin. You know, the, the Post got his memo from that meeting. Uh, and, I, you know, part of me wonders if this isn't like a Sherwin, uh, you know, rehab tour kind of a thing. Maybe he wants to come back out and be somebody again. Uh, But I want to talk a little bit more about Sherwin just a little bit. But we do have to take a quick break. So everybody uh, stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So Biden's pick to replace Mike Sherwin was the U.S. attorney in D.C., and he would not take office until 10 months later in November 2021. And almost immediately, Wyndham was brought on. And they started – he started to try to get these subpoenas out, uh, you know, uh, pushing back against the FBI, going to the inspector general, postal inspector, et cetera, uh, doing whatever they could and and probably not elevating it up to the attorney general level. But I just want to remind you about who Mike Sherwin is. Uh, He was installed after Bill Barr and Trump tricked the D.C. U.S. attorney, Jesse Liu, into quitting by offering her a job at the Treasury Department and then yanking that offer after she left (laughs) the D.C. U.S. attorney's office. Leaving that vacancy, Uh, Tim Shea was in there, but he couldn't be in there for more than 120 days. So they went around the Vacancy Act and installed Mike Sherwin. So this is a Barr Trump installed guy. Sherwin approved giving internal FBI records to Flynn's lawyers. Uh, He supported Barr's motion to dismiss Flynn's case. Uh, Sherwin went on TV 60 minutes and talked about charging Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy, which violated DOJ policy. Yeah,
1: that was was a big deal.
0: That was yeah, mm mm-hmm. And he, he was referred to the Office of Professional Responsibility for that. And Judge Mehta bench slapped him for it. He's like, you... He said, um, the public remarks and your appearance on 60 Minutes could put this case, the Oathkeeper Seditious Conspiracy case, in jeopardy and violate the rights of the accused. Well, the next day, Sherwin resigned, probably to avoid being sanctioned for what he did. And Justice Department officials, including Sherwin... Uh, an official who was overseeing the January 6th inquiry at the time, denied prosecutors' request to seek a search warrant for Mr. Rhodes. So he's ser- he's denying search warrants and uh, subpoenas all over the fucking place. Excuse me. All over the place. So well, we, we can swear here, just not as much as in the weekend episode. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I just want everybody to remember who Mike Sherwin is and that he's the one giving this memo, seemingly, apparently, to the Washington Post And um, uh, to me, he's just not a a good guy.
1: Yeah, and it's curious to me a couple of things. I mean, I think there was also a in at least one inspector general report, some note about an individual who had resigned and could not be compelled to testify because they had resigned. And I don't know if they're referring to Sherwin. I mean, there were a lot of people who were resigning around things that the IG is looking at. But there are – it's clear people like Sherwin, people like D'Antuono have – one, they are very central – players in this narrative, whether they are speaking directly to the Washington Post or have surrogates, meaning, you know, an attorney, a friend, a colleague, somebody who is providing information to the Washington Post, a lot of this information centers around them and their actions. And so, you know, it it makes sense to me that they would be trying to get at least some information to the Washington Post to defend their actions and the choices that they made. But again, I, I just, it's, it's the, Every When you look at the totality, and this is a good article looking at everything, but it still doesn't have, like, this article doesn't really, it makes oblique references to the classified documents out in Mar-a-Lago, but it really doesn't touch on that at all. But it's the same folks, at least initially, who are involved with that. And then, again, you know, I know it's... um and, and we can talk about this maybe some later, too. It Yes, you know, Merrick Garland comes in late and Lisa Monaco comes in late. But I do think there's some things in that article that are, you know, discouraging in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, discussion about, you know, not using Trump's name in any briefing document to avoid the T word, like he's Voldemort or something like that. I do.
0: Right. But that's one person who said that about right. the. Yeah. So that's like not a quote from Garland or anything like that. But I mean, if that's how one person felt, then that's how one person felt.
1: Yeah. And again, to the, the the point I made earlier, when you come in, I mean, I think is, you know, the you don't, you walk a fine line when you walk into a senior leadership position. And look, I've been in a senior leadership, but nowhere near like the attorney general of the Department of Justice or the director of the FBI. I've briefed those people. But when you come in, you're relying on your subordinates to give you a lay of the land. You know, you want to be on the one hand Hear what they have to say, appreciate what they've done, try and learn from there why they did or didn't do things. And if you come in and you start being a jerk and aggressively questioning people about why haven't you done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, I mean, that's just that, in my experience, that's a mark of a poor leader, right? You want to come in and sort of absorb what's going on and just listen for a week or two or a month. And so of course, you know, Garland's but not in a really like tough six spot. or eight months, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Right. But I mean Garland's in a tough spot. But again, his view, his perspective of what's being gone on going on is directly shaped by the people who are briefing him. And so and again, you know, those same people who are like, you know, to the extent, you know, what does Garland know about the investigation of Hillary Clinton? What does Garland know about the investigation of Russia's attacks in 2016? The only thing he probably knows is either what he's read in the newspaper or what these same people are briefing him. And these same people are briefing him like, holy crap, we got drug into a knockdown, drag out political battle with the Republicans, with accusations all over the media that we've been accused of politicizing DOJ and the FBI. We want to avoid that. We want to be careful. What people aren't telling him, because everybody in the mainstream of the FBI, for sure, and I believe also DOJ, was more than happy to have that. Go off and be Mullers, right? It's not anything to do with us. We're not going to draw Trump's ire by doing it. And so, you know, nobody is saying, hey, yeah, you know, we got a lot of heat, but, you know, it was the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of bad illegal, alleged illegal behavior here that we're going to have to investigate one way or the other. I don't think that was the message being put forward. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have built into these initial briefings a huge risk aversion, which, again, goes at the end of the day, the, the bad guy is Trump. The bad guy is Barr. They are the ones who enabled this sort of, like, you know, the constant working the refs, as it were. I You know, they intimidated successfully, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, that
0: was their goal. Uh Their goal was to chill worked. this kind of thing. And it, yep, it worked. And that's what I think this article bears out, is that it worked. Um, Also missing from this piece, uh, on January 25th, the Department of Justice Inspector General opened an investigation into Jeffrey Clark and you know, inter- possible interference. Uh, they opened two that week. They opened one into what the DOJ's response was to January 6th attack on the Capitol and one into did DOJ try to interfere in the peaceful transfer of power. And later that year in October of 2021, right before Graves got to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., Garland swore under oath to Congress that the DOJI Inspector General was investigating that and that he would accept whatever recommendations Horowitz made to him, the DOJIG. meaning. That which tells me at that time that investigation had not yet finished, uh, but then very shortly after that, we have Wyndham coming in. We have other things happening. We have Clark. We have subpoenas trying to go out from Wyndham for Clark and Eastman and stuff. So I think at some point, those um, those recommendations came in, and I said at the time, I don't think it was necessary to wait for DOJ Inspector General recommendations. But I think maybe the reason. Was an and I think you and I talked about this too on on the Daily Beans was Merrick Garland trying to insulate himself from politicization by saying, "Hey, look, I had a nonpartisan DOJ recommend these things," and then Monaco saying, "Hey, we had." Um, Michigan uh, recommend we look into fraudulent actors and say, okay, well, we we got to get the January 6th transcripts from the bipartisan January 6th committee so that we can compare people's testimony, make sure there's no inconsistencies. There seemed to be a lot of hemming and hawing uh, uh, to insulate himself from seeming uh, politicized. And, and I didn't think that that extra step was necessary. And I don't know if that's what, Pushed back the the opening of this investigation, or not? Whether they were waiting for those IG recommendations so he could insulate himself, I think possibly. I think that's a huge possibility, Um, and it might be another reason that we didn't see activity on this until the end of twenty twenty one, until about nine or ten months after the attack on the Capitol. At least looking into the fraudulent elector scheme. Um, the the Raffensperger phone, you know, all this other uh, kind of Jeffrey Clark stuff that he was doing with his letters to seven states and trying to tell Georgia to you know put in false electors or whatever. I don't know if that's the case, but it's not mentioned in this in this article, and I do think it's important.
1: Yeah, and I don't think the people who are really going to keep in mind too every not only this Washington Post article, but every single article you read is informed only by the people who are choosing to talk. Right, so it's not. You know, Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and Chris Ray are not sitting down with Carol Linnig and spilling their guts about everything that's going on. So it, it's, you know, it, it's very much a Rashomon thing going on where the, the perspective of the article is the perspective of the people who have chosen to speak to the journalists and based on information that independent of those people talking, journalists can come up with the court records or whatever the, you know, witness you meeting
0: know, memos, whatever silent, the case yeah. may be.
1: So it's not it, it's not an entire picture of the sort that you would get like, you know, the IG will you know, sit down and have a much broader access to people and be able to tell a much greater story. But in general, you know, IG, unless it's like some urgent like, hey, you know, we found a systemic problem with all kinds of like FISA Woods forms and you've got a problem with verification across the board and you need to fix it right away. In general, the IG and any sort of administrative report where people are compelled to give information and you get a very complete record, typically those things get held until after all the criminal stuff is wrapped up because you don't want some big... IG report dropping in the right. middle of a prosecution—that's going to create, you know, discoverable material and whatever the case may be. So I, you know, one, I hope the IG is getting a very complete, you know, even far more than the Washington Post is, everybody's perspective, because it's not just, you know, what you know Mike Sherwin thought. It's all these different people in the room having a very unvarnished, you know, under oath interview with the IG, saying, "No, this has happened. This is what happened. This is what I was thinking. This is why we did what we did." I hope that will come. We'll see. I don't, I think, you know, I, again, you know, my little inside opinion is that I think, you know, Mike Horowitz is, is much more afraid of Chuck Grassley and a Republican uh, Senate Judiciary Committee than he is of Dick Durbin and the Democrats. And that's the committee that gives him his funding and his legal authority. So I'm curious to see what this report ultimately looks like. But, uh, you know, again, he has he shown that he's able to put out very comprehensive very complete uh, accountings of what went on. And so will he do that for all of the things from January 6, 2021 through, you know, today? I hope so. Are we going to see it anytime soon? I doubt it.
0: I mean, we saw the IG report uh, about FISA after the uh, Mueller investigation was over. Um, If there were recommendations and a report went out at the end of 2021 from the IG, And there were criminal referrals in there or something like that. Of course, we're not going to see that report until everything's done. But I do think we'll see that report once charging decisions are made or perhaps even after um, Jack Smith files his final report with the Department of Justice about his investigation into January 6th, since it's his now. Um, So... Uh, but, you know, again, just another potential reason for delay. Not saying I agree with it, <laughs> but that it could be out there and it's just not mentioned in this report. Um, all right. We have a lot more news to get to. Um, real fun stuff. Uh, we, can, I think after this break we're going to talk about um, uh, Jack Teixeira. And we've got some interesting stuff with Jim Jordan and Comer and Ron Johnson and all those cool dudes. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back. We have more th- patrons to thank. So starting with Jennifer Keller, Linda Yeager, Tom Boulay, Deborah Wallison, Tony and PA, Robert Edelstein, Sally Fry, Meglit, Most Gurley, Alexis Blake, Kathy, Patty and Her Pug are patrons, Susan LeFever, Bruce Mayer, and Marcia Jacobson. Thank all of you so much. Again, we couldn't do the show without you and really, really appreciate your support and for becoming patrons. So thank each and every one of you. So next thing, let's uh, shift to the New York Times and Glenn Thrush, who is writing about Jack Teixeira. Teixeira, you may remember him, that is a uh, former Air National Guardsman up in Massachusetts who was uh, arrested earlier for uh, posting a variety of classified information, allegedly on a Discord server, and also engaging in some really concerning uh, racist, anti-Semitic, racially charged comments uh, while firing weapons at a a range and also having a great deal of uh you know a number of firearms in his possession, but engaging in a lot of uh, very problematic behavior, he was arrested via complaint, which is one sort of avenue that the government can go if they want to get an arrest warrant quickly. They'll swear out via what's called a complaint. An agent will go in front of a judge, swear that out, say, look, here are all the facts that are or not all the facts. Here are facts that are known to me demonstrating problem cause that a law has been broken. I want a warrant for his arrest. The judge signs that, issues an arrest warrant. Frequently in those cases, though, uh, either, you know, a couple of things have to happen pathwise if you do arrest somebody via complaint. One of those paths is to go get an indictment to take information for a grand jury, get an indictment. And then in this case with Teixeira, that's what happened. Last Thursday, a federal grand jury indicted Teixeira on six counts of retaining and transmitting classified national defense information. Alison, it's a big deal. I mean, if convicted, the max he could face is up to 60 years in prison. It won't probably in all likelihood be that long. But this is a really, really serious, serious uh, set of crimes that he's accused of.
0: Yeah, yeah. and And it's a 10-page indictment. And it represents a distillation of the, uh, quote, immense trove of secrets Airman Teixeira is accused of taking from computers at an intelligence unit in the Cape Cod Air Base and sharing with online friends he was hoping to impress in a chat group on Discord. Uh, Justice Department lawyers have said the extent of the information he leaked far exceeds what has been publicly disclosed. And that's the frightening part. Uh, to me, um, that and I think this that also might be true in the Trump's doc, the Trump documents case. Um, the the information we know about is nothing compared to what actually happened, right?
1: Yeah, and some of this, you know, we're relying a lot on some of the. It was the New York Times who's done Eric Toler, I think is his name, one of the reporters who did a lot of work uh, digging into material that were on Discord servers and some other places and trying Such to find work. out. Okay. What it is that he leaked, but the reality is that, you know, DOJ and the FBI is, you know, it seems like at least from the wording of the indictment gone out and done yet more work. And again, you know, DOJ has the advantage of subpoenas and search warrants that the New York Times doesn't and have found again, you know, what you just mentioned that it far exceeds what's been publicly disclosed. And again, there's a lot that's been a lot that's been publicly disclosed. And for DOJ to say it far exceeds that, it's really, really concerning, particularly when you add up into the fact that um not only did he have this sensitive information, we'll talk a little bit about what that was, but there's also some indication that he understood that people on those channels that he was posting this information were not American, were not in the US, that they were, you know, not only foreign, but there's some indication, hey, if you have questions, ask them and I'll see what I can do. Um, But to the the indictment itself, it talks about all these mishandled documents and includes in the description a report on the hacking of an unnamed U.S. company's accounts by what is termed a foreign adversary, information about the provision and delivery of military equipment to Ukraine, and a highly sensitive report on Russian and Ukrainian troop movements that might have compromised what the indictment calls classified sources and methods. Other documents include details of a foreign plot to target U.S. troops abroad that described where and how an assault might take place. So, you know, Allison, looking at this, this isn't just, I mean, you know, there there are levels of, certainly levels of classification, right? Top secret, secret, or confidential. But then also when you look at sort of the content, I mean, this isn't some, you know, very sensitive source talking about Beijing's plans to upgrade their communications infrastructure between... Beijing and Shanghai. I mean, you know, it's important and it's a big deal and it could compromise sources and methods. But this stuff, we are talking about Russian and Ukrainian troop movements in the middle of a war. Yeah. And the the foreign
0: plot to target U.S. troops. I mean, that rings a little bell in my head about how we thought about the, uh, there were reports that the Russians... Um, we're targeting U.S. troops, and then of course the Trump administration was like, "Ah, oh, it's all bullshit." So you know, I I don't know that that's this specific thing, but uh, and then these are these are huge, especially if you find out the sources of those uh, troop movements. That's extreme extreme danger to national security.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I think Mark Esper went on um, some of the Sunday talk shows this past weekend and was talking about you know he was comparing Trump to 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 share, and I don't, I mean. And the first time, first I heard it, I'm like, I don't know if they're the same. But then when you think about it, it's like when you look at motive. I mean, it's just it's all about like you know ego, right? It's like I'm going to share this. Look at me, I'm important. It's DoD information. It's information relating to our troops, it's and sailors and airmen and women. It's it's information that is you know, not only the the motive, some like, you know, ego boost to try and make themselves look important, but it's dealing with, it's again, it's, 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 it's impact on military members is immediate. And it, it just speaks to this sort of like lack of either understanding and or care about the fact that the information that they're disclosing or keeping on without authorization, allegedly, puts lives, puts military lives at risk, our military, U.S. military lives at risk. And it, again, it's not just some weird esoteric foreign thing. It's the life right. of, right? And, and, and so, you know, and then more I thought about, I'm like, well, maybe he's on to something. So I don't, you know, are they are they the same thing was, you know, Trump posting it to some, you know, online forum? No. When you kind of look at like what the sort of information was and why they were doing it, yeah, there's more there more similarities maybe than initially meet the eye.
0: Yeah. And some of these materials uh, included SCI, um, S- a sensitive compart- compartmentalized information. Um, I don't have any personal knowledge of that because I only had a top secret clearance. But my dad, who I did a lot of research on, had an SCI clearance. He worked at CUNIA underground with nuclear missiles and did tabletop nuclear Russian preemptive strike war game exercises and you know, uh, I mean, like that's that he was, you know, intercepting Russian messages and decrypting them and translating them. That's like heavy, heavy stuff.
1: Yeah, and so typically, yeah, again, your three flavors of classified information are confidential, secret, and top secret. But then SCI is you'll you'll really break that down, like, and and almost like you know, it becomes it goes in the case of top secret. Information, something that's very, very sensitive. When you tack on an SCI sort of caveat on there, and you get all these different, you know, code words that some of us now have heard because of the 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 Trump Mar-a-Lago documents. Whether it's HCS for Human Control System or TK for Talent Keyhole, which is satellite imagery type related stuff, it gets really. I mean, it, it's things that if they're disclosed can tell you, oh, look, you know, the satellite has this capability of getting an image with this resolution from this distance away, and it's really. You know, and we literally spend billions, billions with a B, billions with a B of dollars to put, to create, and then put these systems into operation. So to have somebody like kind of, you know, tossing it around is a real, you know, is a real harm. And again, that's the technical side. On the human side, if this sort of thing leads to the identification of somebody who is within the the PRC military, you know, within 2PLA, their their military intelligence services if that allows the the PRC to identify them, there's a real good chance that they get arrested and executed. So, you know, not only are we talking about huge amounts of money, we're talking about human lives. And so that's, it's, it's a really big deal. And again, you know, what's interesting is, you know, Teixeira is not, Teixeira has been in custody since he was arrested. And he's still in custody because prosecutors went to the, you know, the judge when they had these, uh, you know, a series of detention hearings and said, look, not only did he have All of this information that we're not sure if we have it all and what information he may or may not have in his head. But as I mentioned earlier, he's got this history of making violent and racist threats. He had access to a wide variety of weapons that he had purchased. And so you have this sort of like dual threat of on the one hand... Harm he might cause the community by disclosure classified information. And on the other hand, like physical harm he might cause the community mm-hmm. because he's like, you know, and again, in high school, there's some indication that he was suspended because of violent threats that he made. So it's it's a, you know, he, short story is he's in jail. He will not likely leave jail until trial. And we'll see if he, uh, you know, goes to trial or tries to get a plea deal instead.
0: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, whether or not he, um, cops a plea on this one. Um, it's yeah, it's, he's a very dangerous person. I,
1: I think, I mean, I would hope, you know, he's not, I think the case on him is so strong. He's looking at either five to 10 years in jail or he's looking at, you know, 15 plus and yeah. for a 20 year old, I mean, that's all horrible as a, whatever he is, twenty twenty one is a, is a young kid. All of those are bad, but. Some are much less bad than others. So I would think if he's got decent counsel, you know, they're going to look at the evidence and I think going to have a, you know, tell him, hey, look, you, there's not a whole lot of a defense you have. It's not, you know, you weren't whistleblowing anything. It's not like this was like, you know, you were trying to shed light on Russian attacks on the elections in 2016. You're giving up stuff about, you know, <laughs> war in movement. Ukraine. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> There's not there's not a compelling defense here. It's in your interest to take a plea. So uh, hopefully he's getting good advice. I would not be surprised at all. If I were his attorney and I'm not an attorney, but having seen a lot of cases, I would be advising him heavily to take a plea deal. So, you know, stay tuned and let's see what happens.
0: Yeah, we'll talk more about it as the case goes on. All right, we're gonna take one more quick break. Then we're gonna come back and talk about the, uh, you know, the clown show in (laughs) in the Republican House. And now they're dragging some Republican senators into it, too, although they've been there for a while. Stick around, we'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. Just a few more patrons to give a shout out to. Thanks for your patience Kyle Bordeaux, Julie Forbes, Linda Bell, Lori Mayorga, Gretchen Gard, Chris Callison Birch. Uh Kara Tessa Sparkletoes. I love it. Uh Ted Boone, Opal, Dan Lamone, Zach Sampson, and Heather C. Again, thank you so much. You make this show happen. Now over to the weaponized committee. Uh this is Jim Jordan's <laughs> committee and his and his pals. Uh so you know, he's been trying to get the Justice Department to hand over Trump stuff because Trump is telling Jordan, hey, get get whatever you can, be my public defenders. Uh, you know, muddy the waters. So Jim Jordan's writing heated letters to the DOJ saying, we demand all of the investigatory materials into Donald Trump, even though we know <laughs> that you can't hand over stuff that's part of an open and ongoing investigation. He didn't say that, but he knows. Um, and, and the Justice Department largely rejected his request for information related to special counsel Jack Smith's investigation. Not surprised. Department of Justice told Jordan he was requesting, quote, non-public information about an ongoing criminal investigation and prosecution by a special counsel, unquote. I could have told you that. I could have told you that, Jim Jordan. And I was a comedian for 10 years and was a civil servant. So, quote, protecting the confidentiality of non-public information regarding investigations and prosecutions preserves the American people's confidence in the even handed administration of justice by guarding against the appearance of political pressure or other improper attempts to influence department decisions. And Pete, they go on to say, this is to protect Trump. This is to protect the rights of the accused as well. That's what I don't think people understand. You could mess up, uh, you could mess it up for, for Donald uh, if you do this. It could violate his Fourth Amendment. Like, people just don't seem to understand. And other unnamed um, or unindicted co-conspirators or people who aren't being charged, releasing their names is, is uh, you know, uh, 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 that's a bad, we don't do that. <laughs> we, well, you're, you do if you're Durham, but we don't yeah, do that.
1: Yeah, right, of course. Yeah, and you know, keep in mind too, this is coming on the heels of uh, Rolling Stone reporting that we talked about earlier, I think a couple of weeks ago at this point, that members of the Trump team are trying to get the names of every person working for Jack Smith because they want to put them on a short list that one of the first things that happens when Trump Uh, regains the presidency as they all get fired. So, you know, this is, you know, clearly... And harass them in the meantime. uh, And harass, right. And, you know, before that, do what, you know, Trump has already done by talking about, you know, and naming Jack Smith's uh, spouse and, you know, kind of repeatedly, he knows full well what happens when he names her in a speech. I'm, you know, certain the level of sort of, not just spam, but, you know, outright threats and, and, uh, you know, both online and physical threats that come their way. He knows what he's doing. And so there's no... Hidden agenda here. The goal is retribution. Yes, Trump always tells all his campaign rallies, and now he's just enlisted Jim Jordan to try and use the the power of Congress to get at that same information. And, you know, like you, not at all surprised the DOJ said this. He was absolutely predictable. And it's, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, this kind of BS performance art that Jim Jordan is engaging in, knowing he's not going to get anywhere. The, the goal but is. But then he can say it,
0: that they're, you know, oh, they're deep state. Uh, they won't give us the stuff.
1: Yeah. Right. And, and and what are you doing? What are you doing? You're trying to it's like a it's it is a mob boss, right? You're 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 working for a mob boss who are trying to identify people who are investigating you to try and put the screws to him to deter them from doing their job, right? To say, look, you really want to do this because it might, you know, in a couple of years might cost you your job. That's he's putting he's putting the Congress, the power of the Congress behind that effort. I, you know, and it would be, you know, it's it's horrible, and the only mitigating factor is they're so goddamn incompetent about it <laughs> that it's never going to get anywhere. But that doesn't take away from the horror that, you know, Jordan or, you know, his his buddy uh, James Comer, who always reminds me of, you know, Ralph and that Simpsons episode where they're making Valentines, and the teacher's like, the children are right to laugh at you. You know, it, it's this sort of, it, it just, they are hapless, and that is the only saving grace from what is a wild wild abuse of not just an abuse of power but just utterly trying to uh, you know dancing on the edge of criminal you know obstruction and intimidation I, it just yeah. i've never seen anything like it
0: yeah and uh the doj by the way uh did say uh we do have 26 people working uh for jack smith but they're not going to give you the names um so you know that's pretty comparable to what Mueller had Mueller had about Seventeen, and uh, but then there were I think twenty to forty co-located FBI agents, counterintelligence folks that were going back and forth doing counterintelligence stuff. Uh, But uh, I don't think they. I think that the twenty-six doesn't include FBI uh, agents, analysts, and and things like that. So that's a pretty robust.
1: That's a pretty robust group. Yeah, and that's that's about what I expected. Look, there's a lot of wiggle room in that number and how they define it. And they, they say people who ever worked on it. I mean, that could be, you have a, like a computer forensic expert who gets called in to do some analysis of, you know, three cell phones that are seized and puts in, she puts in a week and a half of work. You know, that's a person who worked on it, but it's not like a full-time core team member. So there was, when I read the statement, it was like, oh, okay, there's a little bit of ambiguity in here, which is a good thing. But again, about the size that I would expect. And again, people need to understand. It's a pretty complex endeavor. It's not just Mar-a-Lago, but when you think about everything that went on with January 6th, everything from like were they witting or coordinating the violence in the march on the Capitol, the fake elector plot, all the stuff that went on with Eastman. There, there are so many different, you know, were congressmen and women involved in this? You know, going back to that December meeting, were they witting to it? Louis Gomert and all these congressional people who like sponsored federal lawsuits, trying to. Th- there are so many different avenues. It's a complex, complex investigation. So, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised to see that many, and you know, I'm glad to glad to see that it's resourced as it, you know, at the level it appears to be.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember there was a whole forensics team, accounting team that was brought in to the Mueller uh, probe that was ancillary, right? But you, you know, there's definitely more to just the core team, and they don't really specify whether this is a core team or not. But of course, no, Jim, you can't have their names. Um, DOJ warned that disclosing any information from, from Jack Smith's uh, investigations could violate laws and court orders, um, you know, not just interfere with the investigation. So, I mean, everybody knows that we all know that we were all trying to get Mueller stuff and, you know, and the Mueller's like, no, no, sorry, you can't, I'll have a report for you, um. Probably earlier than I expected, but I'll have a report for you. Uh, So, you know, just you have to hang back and and wait for that. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see how Jim Jordan. I mean, there's going to be we're going to have so many episodes, Pete, on how Jim Jordan spins that report if he's still in Congress when the report comes out. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Well, no kidding. And I mean, look, you know, all this, though, it, it is again, we're laughing about it because it deserves to be laughed at. But one of the most chilling things about Miami was when they were talking about, you know, Trump's initial appearance and his arraignment and the discussion of a security detail. And it wasn't Trump's Secret Service security detail. It was the discussion of Jack Smith's security detail. And the fact that we need, in this day and age, a case involving a former president of the United States with a threat environment is so large that the special prosecutor has a, not you know a guy, but a detail, a security detail, who has to travel with him down to Miami because of the threat picture that's a big deal. And that's just a horrible commentary on, you know, where we are today. It's a horrible commentary about, you know, sort of the lunatic fringe of violence that associates themselves with Trump and the fact that, you know, anybody has to have, you know, again, it's like somebody trying to prosecute John Gotti and walking in with a security detail. That's that's what we're looking at. There they're, they're real world, all this all this bluster and all this threat, you know, at the end of the day, however comical it is, by Jim Jordan. When you go to the, you know, sort of the endpoint, it results in, you know, potentially violent people who are willing to use violence against the people who are trying to investigate and prosecute these cases. So, again, I, it, it's it's just a sad state of affairs. I'm I'm sorry. I can't imagine, you know, for either Smith or his family and sort of the impact on needing a mm. security detail like that and what that feels like. But. You know, God bless him for for you know having the courage and just driving into it without fear.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, Regardless of how long it took him to get there, right? <laughs> what we were talking about in the first day. Uh, yeah, I just want everybody to know I wanted a special counsel like a year before we got one, but that's because you know I have I have a thing for special counsels, I guess. Um, All right, and finally, Lordy, there aren't tapes.
1: <laughs> Cue uh, <laughs> the Benny Hill music, right? The, the part of the program where we laugh.
0: <laughs> Several Republicans said this week they don't know if there really are tapes of Joe Biden talking about being bribed. House Oversight Committee <laughs> Chair Jim Comer said lawmakers, quote, don't know if they're legit or not. That's him. That's him talking. Don't know if they're legit or not. But we know that the foreign national claims he has them, unquote. Jim Jordan said, yeah. we don't know for sure if these tapes exist, unquote. Uh, it's, it, it goes on. There's more. But you wanted to say something.
1: And, and no. And I mean, yeah, the, the funniest part is that Ron Johnson, who, you know, auditioning for, you know, one of the few senators auditioning for a place in the House of Representatives, suggested on a program, not making this up, a program called the Conservative Circus, that not only might the tapes not exist, but also the foreign national who spoke to the FBI informant might lack credibility. Quote, Ron Johnson, proud one of two senators from the proud state of Wisconsin, quote, we don't know really if the tapes exist. We just don't know that. Whether this was just a bluff on the part of Whoever the executive was, I think it was Mikhail Zlachevsky, the CEO of the, the the corrupt oligarch, unquote. So they, 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 it's, it's a clown show. It is, in fact, a conservative circus. Oh,
0: and by they, the they, way, they, for, for Ron Johnson to admit that, that that's a bad dude. Because he's he's funneled and laundered all sorts of Russian disinformation into Congress in the past uh, from his buddies Rudy over at Fraud Guarantee and Furtosh and all that shit during the whole Ukraine thing. Uh, for him to say, eh, it might not be legit. Ron Johnson saying that.
1: And who And who is Ron, who are Senator, I'm sorry, should be respectful. Who are Senator Johnson's PR people? Who are the people saying, you know what, Senator, yeah, there's a program, the, the conservative circus. Sounds good, boss. Why don't you go on there? K-Boss, <laughs> hey, there's this group coming in. They've got information. They're kind of sketchy, little slimy guys. They Their company, they call themselves Fraud Guarantee. Hey, go for it, boss That sounds i mean who who is advising this man mm. why Why is it the continually find? you know it's like a it, it truly you could not make we
0: do more research for the shows I appear on I, <laughs> not yeah. <a> senator <laughs>
1: well, yeah i just i' <laughs> we'll see where it goes, but you know, hey, he just mm. got reelected, so we have five years and what two months five years when was when was he sworn in in january so what five years and five months left of this Yay. delightful uh, you know, a beautiful mind, a beautiful mind. Beautiful the...
0: mind boxes. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, before we get out of here, uh, we've been following the E. Jean Carroll case. And, you know, there's Carroll 1, O-N-E, and Carroll 2, T-W-O. Carroll 1 was 2019, where Trump said when he was president, he defamed her. Then there was Carroll 2, when he repeated the exact same stuff on True Social after he was president. They they won their case, uh, Carroll 2. Uh, but there, but Carol one was hung up because DOJ was going to rep that case, and it was being decided by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals as to whether or not DOJ could no, not Second Circuit, excuse me, Second Circuit, which threw it to the DC Court, which threw it back to the Second Circuit, and that you know it's just been going on and on because trying to decide whether what Trump said when he was president was part of his job. Now, it was originally Bill Barr who came in and said the DOJ is going to rep in Carol One. Well, recently, as you know, uh, Carol filed uh, an amended complaint to the first one, the 2019 Carol One case, saying, hey, he went on CNN Town Hall and said all the same stuff again. We'd like to do an amended complaint onto Carol One. At which point, Department of Justice and Merrick Garland said, oh, really? Well, we withdraw... Our representation of Donald Trump in that case. And we would like time to reconsider whether we will represent him based on whether or not the judge uh, accepts the amended complaint. Well, the judge has accepted the amended complaint, and Judge Kaplan, same judge as the Carroll 2 case, has set the trial date for January 2024. But I haven't heard yet if the DOJ is going to rep. I don't think they will because there was stuff said outside of his job, and the court has accepted this as one case.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's going to be really interesting, too, because I do think, look, at the end of the day, however much Merrick Garland talks about returning DOJ to the norms that have guided its history for the, you know, however many past generations, they are sensitive to public sentiment. They do read The Washington Post. They do see criticism that's being levied against them. And so in the context, certainly they got a ton of it, in my opinion, appropriately, when they defended Trump saying this was, you know, they're going to remove it. And he made these comments in the you know course of his official duties as the president, which I think is nonsense. Yep. I... I am very curious to see where they come out on this because there are a lot of things uh, you know, going on in terms of DOJ's position vis-a-vis Trump as opposed to the presidency and whether those two are necessarily analogous in a legal uh, sort of courtroom setting that I think DOJ, I hope, is doing a lot of really hard thinking about what What does justice served look like? And you know, by by, if you do or don't do something with Trump, it's not like you are giving up or setting any precedent from a, you know, a more, (laughs) you know, dare I say it, normal president. Trump is sui generis. So just the things he's doing, in my opinion, don't lock you into, you know, Trump was saying the things he said about E. Jean Carroll and some president and. 2082 is going to say something that is not you know not at all anything like trump was and therefore but you're locked into this precedent i don't i i think sometimes doj falls into the trap of thinking too hard i think they fall into the trap of being trying to be too apolitical and actually start causing damage and you know if i'm too and i know we're we're probably a little different on our you know a level of criticism of uh merrick and some of the senior doj folks but to the extent i have criticism coming about the very beginning um Topic of discussion on our podcast today: This Washington Post article. It said Garland, in particular, is trying too hard to return mm-hmm. to past practice. He's trying too hard to be apolitical, and in that trying too hard, he is in fact making a political decision. No, which I is agree. Causing I agree right, causing trouble and doing doing things they shouldn't. So I was very, upset very about interested
0: not overturning the OLC bar memo and going after the Mueller obstruction of justice charges. I was upset about the Eugene Carroll thing. I think that was the wrong decision as well. I think there were all sorts of wrong decisions about trying to appeal and make the same stupid Bill Barr arguments about why, not you, why you shouldn't release the Bill Barr memo from 2019 from Office of Legal Counsel. But um, I, here's what I think the DOJ will do because he's so careful and so trepidatious. I think he'll come in and say, look, there are remarks in this lawsuit that were made when he was not president. Therefore, we cannot represent him uh, as the DOJ, but we will not opine right now as to whether or not the comments he made while he was president were part of his job. We don't have to, because there are parts of this lawsuit that are he made comments when he was not president. And that precludes us from having to represent him. Bye, have a nice day. So they were, you know, that's what I think yeah, is going to go that makes down. sense.
1: Right. No, that, that totally makes sense. And that gives them an out. I don't know how that impacts the the arguments about what... You know, the earlier things, but yeah, to the extent it was like things on CNN, it's clear that he was no longer the president. I think yeah. that, you know, if they can find it out, they'll jump at it. So I
0: want them to surprised. say, you know, we wouldn't represent the, the, we don't think that's what he, you know, the comments he made is, were in in the line of duty as president, but they won't. They don't, I don't think they'll have to. And I think they'll take the easy out here. Just no, I think cents. you're right. I think
1: mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. And we'll know soon enough though.
0: Yeah. That's, that's my beans. All right. Well, this has been wonderful. And who knows where we'll be next week at this time, my friend. Uh, there could be other charges coming out of New Jersey. There, there was ongoing investigations and a Jack Smith filing. We could have January 6th stuff wrapping. I mean, it, we're at the, right now, it's it's a anything-could-happen time period.
1: Yeah, and we're, you know, next week we'll be about a month out from the beginning of the window when Fonnie Willis said that she would, uh, you know, to be alert for any sort of indictment coming. So, you know, but how do you, you know, it's filling up, right? So you, you've got... <laughs> New York, you got Alvin Bragg. You got uh, Jack Smith in the trial and the documents. You have now Eugene Carroll's lawsuit in the beginning of January 2024. You have Georgia yet to come. You have January 6 potentially yet to come, and all this New is York like New York Attorney you know, General, I, right? New York AG, and yeah, it, there is a lot going on. And you know Trump's dance card is legally is you know already full and just getting fuller. So you know we'll track it all for you and uh, you know talk about it as we get there.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, everybody. I've been Allison Gill,
1: and I'm Pete Truck.
0: MSW
1: Media.